So uh, very quickly, let me just say before I get started, this sermon series was chosen and laid out months and months ago, and I am not smart enough to strategize that I would preach on this text, you know, the week after a major election with our neighbors to the south. So honestly, it's not coincidence. I'm not saying that. God is sovereign. He puts the right thing in the right place at the right time. So we trust in that. But I am taking no credit. And there is no way I am smart enough to figure this out that we end up at this passage on this day. So that's my, like, proviso. We're still in the Jesus Storybook Bible series that we started a few months ago. And last week, we were at the story of Joshua and the people at the city of Jericho and the walls coming down. It was a, a remarkable story. We're fast-forwarding now 400 years to the life of David. And during that 400-year period, the people of Israel have settled in the land. They've established themselves. They started building cities. They started marrying, started propagating, started living like a nation in a land. And one of the things that happened to them when they did this is, is they did what people do when they get settled and comfortable. They start looking around at the nations around them, and they start thinking to themselves, you know what? It's interesting how they do things over there. I like how they do things over there. Yes, we're supposed to be a different people. God is our God, and, and he's given us judges to rule over us and know, our, know what his will is, and, and we're supposed to be special and unique. But I'm looking around, and I kind of like what the Philistines are up to, and I sort of kind of like what the Amalekites are up to, and they start uh, wanting what the nations around them want. And specifically, what they want is a king. And so they come to Samuel, this is 1 Samuel 8, and they say, hey, give us a king. And I'll just read a, a portion of it. Give us a king to lead us. This displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And they're behaving, and Jesus, God goes on to say that they're behaving just the way they behaved when I took them out of Egypt. They're always complaining, they're always unhappy, they're always dissatisfied, and they're always looking to the nations around them for how they ought to live. And God says, fine, give them a king. That's what they want. So they get Saul. Saul starts out pretty well, but things start to go south because Saul starts doing the same thing that the nation starts doing. He starts looking around and seeing what the nations around are doing as well. And he begins to model himself more and more, not after the kind of man that God wanted him to be, but more and more after the kings around him. And that is most clearly demonstrated actually in the chapter before the one we just read, 1 Samuel 15. And we need that for the context of what we're going to talk about today. God comes to Saul and says, I want you to destroy the Amalekites. They are a wicked, wicked people, and I want you to wipe them out. And we say, whoa, that sounds kind of like overkill. But you need to understand the Amalekites had been warned, they had been told to repent, and they refused to do it. And so God had come to, to the point where he said, I want justice done. And therefore, Saul, I want you to wipe them out. And we think, wiping out is justice? It seems like a little overblown that God would demand that an entire people be wiped out. This is genocide. This isn't justice. But listen to this. Every ancient king said that they wanted justice. And to justify the, their attack of, a, of another nation, they would say, well, we need to mete out justice on this other nation. But really what they wanted to do is they wanted to accrue personal power and wealth. 
And so when they would attack, what they would do is they would enslave the other people and therefore add them to their economy and make themselves stronger, and they would take all the plunder. They would take their livestock and their money and their crops and everything and make it their own in order to, to strengthen them personally and individually. And God was saying, I do not want you to do that, Saul. You're not allowed to take any people. You're not allowed to take any livestock. You're not allowed to take anything because I want you to mete out my justice upon them. This is not about you making yourself richer and more powerful. This is about my justice. Saul does not listen. He attacks the Amalekites. He captures their king, Agag, and he, they, he takes their livestock. And so he's proving that he's becoming just like the kings of the other nations. And so God says... Well, that's no good. I can't have that. My people are supposed to be different. And therefore, the leader of my people needs to be different. And therefore, Samuel, I want you to, go to uh, uh, anoint a king who is a man after my own heart. Here's the issue in the story. Look at verse 1. God comes to Samuel and he says, How long will you mourn for Saul? See, Samuel thought that Saul was going to be the king that would rule with grace and compassion and justice and righteousness, be the kind of king that people needed in order for them to be the kind of people that they were supposed to be as God's people, representing God to the world. And Saul had failed miserably, and therefore Samuel thought, oh no, all is lost. But God says to him, uh-uh, all is not lost. There's hope. Continue reading in verse 1. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. He is a man after my own heart. This is something that, G that God said earlier. And he will, he will lead with mercy and he will lead with righteousness and he will lead my people and I want you to anoint them. Now, let me pause very quickly here and tell you this is not just a historical curiosity. This is actually a theme that looms large in every human heart. If anything, the last number of months as we've been observing what's happening with our neighbors to the south, is it has highlighted for us that what we desperately long for as human beings is righteous leadership. Whether it's a king, I know we don't want kings, but we want parliaments, or we want presidents, or we want prime ministers, or we want uh, exec, you know, executives. We want governments that rule righteously and justly, truly. It's a longing that every human and so the same needs that the people had then are needs that we have right now today. What do we look for? What do you look for in your leadership? This is what we're going to look at this morning as we study this text together. And now, we're not going to just see that this is what we should be looking for in our leadership. This is what we should be looking for in people. You're looking for a girlfriend. You're looking for a boyfriend. You're looking for a buddy, you just got to high school or you just started a new school or whatever and you're looking for friends to hang out with, you're looking for people to become your peeps, this is important for all of us. What should we be looking for? We're going to see what we shouldn't be looking for, what we should be looking for, and a couple other things um, that I'll tell you when we get there. So here we go. What we shouldn't be looking for, or the wrong way to evaluate a leader. God goes, or Samuel goes to Jesse, or God says to Samuel, sorry, go to Jesse, anoint one of his sons as a king. And Samuel, of course, is scared, and he says, if Saul finds out I'm a dead man, and God says, 
good point. That is a problem. Take a heifer with you and say that you're going there to sacrifice. Now, that's just smart. He's not lying, but it gives Samuel a reason to go. And so Samuel goes, and then in verse 4, it says, interestingly, when he shows up, when he arrives at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. And that's because Samuel was a prophet. And when a prophet showed up at your town, he was there to do one of two things, either to bless you (laughs) or to curse you. And they wanted to know, are you here to bless or are you here to curse? Do you come in peace? And he says, listen, I'm here in peace. And they go, okay. He says, consecrate yourselves for a sacrifice, which is basically means it's similar to what we do when we do Lord's Supper. Um, Examine yourself and your relationship with God. Prepare yourself to meet with God in this solemn moment. And they do that. Now, where am I? So they do that, and then the sons start coming in. And Samuel sees Eliab, the oldest son. Now what you need to understand is, is that back then in ancient times, people chose their leaders for very superficial reasons. A big part of what they were looking for was physical appearance. Basically, if you were big, and you were strong, and you could handle a sword, and you were the best fighter, and you could kick everybody's butt, then you had the right to be the king. So they were looking for a guy like Eliab, who was tall and who was fit. You know, they wanted a strong guy, a tough guy, a take-no-guff kind of guy. Even Samuel was looking for that, because when he saw Eliab, he thought, this has got to be the guy, because he looked like Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Big, strong, beefy, tough, good-looking. If you don't think he's good-looking, then Thor. Everybody thinks Chris Helmsworth is handsome, right? Big, beefy, strong. I think I got the right guy. So they think that this is the kind of guy that we need. And things haven't changed. This is the kind of guy that we're looking for. We look for appearances too. We all know that appearances mean something in our culture. Study after study after study after study has proven that good-looking people, the better-looking among us, they tend to get better jobs. They tend to get higher-paying jobs. They tend to even get better service, like in a restaurant, for example. So I always take Jessica with me. It's tough for us people who are not so beautiful. It's easier for those people who are so beautiful. And so what we do is is we go through the motions of trying to make ourselves more beautiful. I, I don't know a lot about Instagram, but I did watch a video once about Instagram filters. It's quite interesting. You take a picture just with your camera, and I see this when my kids Snapchat every once in a while. I see a picture of someone they Snapchat, and I'm like, ugh. No. <laughs> they're average <laughs> but that's because the light shows like the blemishes and what you're really like but then you can take a picture on instagram and you can add these filters and you add this one add this one do this do this and by the end everybody looks like a model because we know that if we can make ourselves look better we can feel better and we will be more accepted and it's all fake i don't know if you know this tom cruise is short he's quite short So whenever he stars in a movie, particularly movies where he's some kind of action hero, like the Mission Impossible movies or like Jack Reacher or something like that, he insists that the movie be shot in a way that improves his height relative to other people, basically to make him look taller. Much of social media, the porn industry, the fashion industry, the cosmetic industry, 
it habituates us to look at outside, outer appearances. And just for you younger people, I'm not trying to, like my kids always think that I'm like speaking to them. You just use church to speak to us all the time. And maybe I've, I'm guilty of that occasionally, but I want to warn everybody who uses the phone thing. When, as you're scrolling through those Instagram feeds, the more you're doing that, the more you are habituating yourself to see how, to, to view appearance as increasingly important. Just by doing it, you are wiring your brain to, to look for the curated and doctored individual rather than the person, what you should be looking for, which we'll get to in a minute. I'm just, just sending out the warning. I'm not telling you to, you know, take, get, get rid of Instagram. I'm just letting you know what's happening. But we do this with our leaders too. We do this with our leaders too. Maybe we're not looking at their looks so much, although Trudeau was very much appreciated for his looks uh, when, when uh, he was campaigning last time. Uh, but we do look for things like, how do they communicate? Or how do they carry themselves? Is this a dynamic leader? Is this a charismatic leader? Or is this a statesman-like leader? So we evaluate their personality. And so we might think that we're looking at the inside, but we're really just, we're looking at qualities they have that are projected outside. Their persona, their personality. And Samuel, he's doing the same thing in this story. He's looking at outside appearances, and God is like, when will you learn, Samuel? Eliab, he's just like Saul. And so he says in verse 7 this, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is point two. This is the right way to evaluate a leadership or what we should be looking for, and it's this, character. Character is more important, always more important, than looks or skill. God tells Samuel he looks at character first. He looks at it before education. He looks at it before skill. He looks at it before talent. He looks at inner character. Now, I'm not saying education is meaningless. I'm not saying that skill is not important and talents shouldn't be developed. Of course they should be. But what God is saying is, is the core is the core. The center is the center. You must start with the center. And the center is character. Inner character. Now, what is inner character? Good question. Glad you asked. Um, what's very interesting is that the word for character that we have, it comes from a Greek word that at its root means engraving. And I think that that's a very good kind of uh, um, uh, summary of what character ought to look like because it... it, it assumes two things. One is, first of all, character is not something that's just there. It's not like character is something that you're born with. You're either born with character or you're born without character. No, it's something that has to be etched upon you. That's what gray engraving is. It has to be cultivated. It has to be pressed in upon you, but it has to have something to press in upon. There's got to be something there to actually engrave. You can't engrave nothing, right? And so listen to this, this great uh, uh, summary, I think, or definition of character. Character takes up the raw material of nature and temperament. So that's what you're born with. You have a nature, kind of a way you are, and a temperament, okay? And weaves these into the strong, well-knit texture of a fully 
moralized person. You see, character refers to your moral self, to the moral structure that is within you. That's what character is fundamentally about. It's your core. It's the inner qualities that make up your moral sense. And this is what God is looking at first. If you think about the world's problems, you look at the world's problems, right? There's so much misery in the world. There's war. There's oppression. That's on a grand scale. On a a personal scale, there's broken relationships. There's fights and quarrels. And there's fathers and kids who are fighting and have terrible relationships. And they're there's doctors and moms, and, and there's husbands and wife and brothers and sisters. It goes on and on and on. What's the source of these problems? Is it lack of talent? Is it lack of skill? Is it, is it a lack of brilliance and creativity? We just can't figure it out yet because we don't have the kind of talents. When you look at the oppression that certain, certain countries are under, where, where leaders are sucking the economy dry in order to pad their own coffers and fill their own bank accounts at the expense of the people living in, in poverty and below, is, is the problem there because there's a lack of, of skill and ability and brilliance? No. It's a lack of love, which is character. The pride and the selfishness that lives in the human heart is what causes the resentment and the hate and the oppression that we see. That's why character is so huge. Character is leadership. Listen to to John Piper. He wrote a, uh, a really fantastic blog post a few weeks ago related to all the stuff happening in the States. And listen to what he says. He says, there is a character connection between rulers and subjects. When the Bible describes a king by saying, he sinned and made Israel to sin, 1 Kings 14, verse 16, it does not mean that he twisted their arm. It means his influence shaped the people. That's the calling of a leader, to take the lead in giving shape to the character of your people. So it happens for good or for ill. That's the truth about leadership, but that's the truth about every relationship. If you are looking for a spouse, if you're looking for someone to date, and all you see is, are they hot? Do they turn me on? Or even, do I have a lot of fun with them? Or even, are they easy to talk to? All of those things might be fine and well and good, but underneath what you should be seeking out is what is their character? What is their moral vision? What is their, their belief about what is right and what is wrong and how, what to value and what not to value and how should we live in this world? Because friends, character is destiny. It matters. You know how when people are married like, 50 years, they're old, uh, they start to look like each other. (laughs) You ever notice that? My poor wife. Let's hope it goes in the other direction. Um, You don't just start to look look like each other physically. You start to look like each other morally, characteristically, psychologically, if I can put it that way. And listen, parents, 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 what are you emphasizing with your kids? What do you want for your kids? Do you want them to be 
sports stars? Do you want them to be awesome academicians? Are you pushing them to be the athlete that they could always be? Are you pushing them to be the, the, the best student that they could always be? What is it you long for? Do you want them to be really, really, really hard workers? I admit that that might have been a problem with my own raising of my own kids, is that I really emphasize the importance of, of working hard. And yeah, that's good that you work hard, but what we should really be after, friends, is cultivating the character of our kids, pointing in the direction that they should go so that they are a person of integrity. So that they are the same, one person said character is what you are when nobody's looking. So that they are the same in public as they are in private. That's what God is looking for. Okay, third thing. Well, then what's the secret to this character? Whether it's in leadership or, or anywhere else. Where does this come from? Back to the story. Jesse parades six more kids to Samuel. And Samuel says, nope, 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 nope. Do you got any more kids? And Jesse, he, he kind of in an offhanded way, well, there's, there's Dave, Davey boy. He's the littlest. In fact, actually, you can translate the word, when it, the youngest, you can translate the word, that word as runt with some justification. And it's interesting, Jesse never even thought of David as an option, which means he was utterly inconsequential completely overlooked, doesn't have the chops, doesn't have the qualities that are expected. And David comes and God said, that's him. And this is what God does all the time, okay? This is what God does all the time. He subverts the world's values. He overturns the world's paradigms all the time. He picked over Cain, Isaac over Rachel. He picks Tamar. He picks Hannah. It's always the weaker, the lesser, the lower, the unexpected, the forgotten, and the overlooked. In 1 Corinthians 1, God's, Paul says this, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And just as a quick application, some of you peeps out here, you feel utterly inconsequential. You know, we heard a little bit of what a life like that is like from Evan in his incredibly honest and open and raw and truthful testimony. You have these dreams, these hopes, these plans, these goals. You even have some talents that you think well, ought to get you to those things. But you are overlooked again and again and again and again and again. And you seem utterly inconsequential and you feel ridiculously average. Some of us have it worse than Evan. No offense, Evan, but you have got some skills. Some of us have very little. We can't sing worth beans. We're not good with tools. We don't do well in school. We never get picked first on the, on the sports team. We are ridiculously average. We're not great at business and we don't get promoted in our jobs. And we feel like in this world that is built, it is literally built from the day you start preschool. It is built on meritocracy. You don't merit beans all. I am so into you. You regular, average, inconsequential person. You are an absolute delight to me. You may have to come to terms with that. 
And that's the struggle, okay? Now, I'm, I'm riffing off Evan's uh, testimony a little bit, if that's okay, brother. But we have to come to terms with that. You see, the gospel is that through Jesus Christ, God delights in you as you are right now. And you have to come to terms with whether that's enough. You have to come to terms with whether that's okay. Because there are tons of us who say, I believe in Jesus, he died on the cross for me, that's great, but chicks won't look at me. And so my life still sucks. Nobody picks me for the sports team, so my life still sucks. I'm still making $30,000 a year even though I work really hard. Well, my, my buddy from school is now making $70,000 a year. And life still sucks. But the reality is, is that God does not come to those who have no outward appearances of success. He comes to those that have a heart for him. He chooses David. What does it say in verse 13? So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. Okay, did I say we're on point three yet? The secret of character? Did I say that? We are, in case. Okay, I'm all over the place now, so that's the problem. Two reasons why. Two reasons why, or two reasons, two things. Two parts to the secret of character. The first is this. It says here that the Spirit of the Lord came upon David. True character, the character that God is looking for, is supernaturally developed. See, the problem with us is that we are selfish. The problem with us is that we are so caught up in what other people think of us or, what other or how successful we are. We're so caught up in that we are thinking about me, 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 me. That's the problem. Saul was proud and therefore he was disobedient. The true king was supposed to be a servant to his people. The true king was not supposed to grasp at personal glory. The true king was supposed to say, I'm not happy unless you're happy. The true king was supposed to say, I will sacrifice for your good. See, it is natural for us to be self-centered and selfish. But the Spirit reshapes us, you see, to love others. He saw David's heart and his Spirit came upon him to reshape him to love others. Now, how did he do that? Well, friends, here's the, the part, second part of it. Suffering. You know, what the, you know what the practice of engraving is? Listen to this definition. The practice of engraving is the practice of incising a design onto a hard, usually flat surface by cutting grooves into it with a steel cutting tool. That does not sound fun if that's my heart. But that's what God does. What happens to David? Right after this story, what happens to David? He goes off and he fights a giant. He gets enlisted into Saul's army, or Samuel's, yeah, no, Saul's army. Saul hates him and chases him out, and he spends the next couple of decades running for his life in the desert. He ends up in the school of character. But in that school of character, God was engraving onto his heart the character that he wanted you see, most of our problems, friends, are not due to our circumstances. Sometimes they are, but very often they're problems of our character. They're not problems of our circumstances. 
Listen, the person who is not afraid of failure will be happy, happier over the long term than the person who is afraid of failure. The person who is constantly needs to prove themselves to gain acceptance is going to be less happy over the long term than the person who doesn't need to do that. Here's one for you. This is my personal story. The person who desperately needs to be liked is going to be far unhappier than the person who doesn't need that approval from others. I spent many years, many years, I spent a number of years in high school desperately needing to be liked, and it led me to do things that I never should have done, and that I knew deep in my heart that I never should have done. It made me wake up every day to thinking, okay, how do I make the girls look at me? How do I make the boys laugh? Not at me, but because I do something funny or cool, and how do I make the teachers hate me so that I gain even more cred with, the, with people in school? And it's a tremendous burden to wake up with that kind of pressure every day but when you come to the place when you say you know what I know that who I am in Christ is more valuable than who I am in anybody else's opinion because he is the king of the universe who lived for me and died for me and rose for me and who looks at me every day and says I rejoice over you with singing when that sinks in your heart and you can say nuts to what everybody else thinks of me my oh my is that the most freeing thing and contented thing in the world but it comes through suffering. <laughs> it's the only way, gang. He's engraving on you. Paul said, though, character produces perse perseverance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us. Okay, let me close, because it's time to close. The problem is, is that we need a king that we can believe in, because, you know, Samuel anoints David, right? What does that mean? Remember at the beginning of the passage? Samuel was grieving because Saul was not the king they needed. The anointed is Messiah. Samuel anointed David as the Messiah. They thought that he was the one who was going to save Israel and turn them into the people that God desperately wanted. But if you look at the rest of his life, what's the problem with Samuel? Or I mean with David? He's not much better than Saul in many ways, is he? He's still self-centered. Look what he did with Bathsheba. Took her as his own, had his, one of his best friends killed in order to make her his wife. This is a guy who struggled with the self-centeredness as well. And he was a lot like him. Now, yes, there was a difference because when he sinned, he repented. And as he, as he grew in his relationship with God, you see David becoming a more and more merciful and gentle soul. He was merciful with Saul. He was merciful with his son Absalom when Absalom tried to steal the nation from him, uh, the, the king from, kingship from him. He was uh, merciful with Mephibosheth, which was Saul's descendant. They were all going to be cut off. And he said, no, he's going to have a place at my table. But most important, you know, he sought God. He hungered for God. He loved God. You read the Psalms. And his soul pants to be with God and the people of God. He says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. But he was still selfish. And so he's not the king that we're looking for, really. The king that we're looking for came centuries later. You know, in Isaiah 53, we discover that there was another son born who didn't impress it says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. 
And when he was anointed at his baptism, the spirit rushed upon him and came down upon him in the form of a dove. And immediately he was chased out into the desert to be tested. Not by Saul, but by Satan himself. But he had perfect character. John says that he was full of grace and truth. He was strong but gentle, just but merciful, kind but firm, everything you are looking for. Not just in a king, but in a friend. And rather than get the crown of gold, he got a crown of thorns. And this forgotten son became the forsaken son when he died on the cross for your sin and for mine. Now when you gaze upon that, when you think about that, when you, when you meditate on that, does it not inflame your heart and make you say, I want to do whatever he wants for, for me? When you sing that song, I don't even know which one it was. The, the first song that we sang. What was that called? Hmm? Let your kingdom come. Yeah, that one. Maybe not that one. I don't know. <laughs> we sang something. When you sing these songs, do you not go, this is, I just want to do what he wants me to do. I just, I want to abandon it all for him. And I want to face whatever he calls me to face with integrity. Because I want to be like him. He's the king you're looking for. He's the king we're all looking for. Thanks be to God, we've got the king. Pray with me. Father, help us, O Lord, to see the king in all his glory. He was inconsequential. And you, there, you nevertheless, chose him to live for us and die for us. And, and, and then you raised him up and set him on his throne and gave him the name that is above every name, that at his name, Every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that he is Lord to your glory. Father, may we, may we confess that and may we be people of character, looking for character and cultivating character even in our kids because we're just seeking to be more and more like our Savior. In his name we pray, amen.